Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Your family, your community, your country, your responsibility. Be the best citizen you can be. Find the Bill of Rights on leadersay.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. Chris, good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Good morning. Lovely, lovely, lovely. I'm very interested in this blood vessels, uh, how the eye preventing the destructive growth of blood vessels. Tell me about that. Yes, indeed. If you look at the eye, you will see that the front of the eye, the cornea, doesn't have any blood vessels in it for obvious reason because if it did then they would get in the way of the light going in and you would therefore have blurry vision. Similarly on the back of the eye the retina where the rods and cones are that turn light into sight they also have no blood vessels in that part of the retina for the same reason in fact the rods and cones pick up their oxygen needs from a thick layer of blood vessels at the right at the back of the eye so something must stop blood vessels growing into those two sites and when blood vessels do grow into those sites they cause disease and there are a number of important sight loss disorders that are associated with that happening but up until now we haven't actually known how that's achieved now there is a, a scientific paper it's in a new journal called eLife which launched in the last six months or so and it the paper is written by Bala Ambati who's an ophthalmologist and a researcher at the University of Utah in America and he noticed that there are some animals, one of them is the Florida manatee, which do have blood vessels growing in those places, particularly the cornea. And he wondered what's different about those particular animals compared with animals that don't have this. And there are also some mice, some rodents, that abnormally get these blood vessels. They have managed to track this down to the fact that the cornea and the retina both make a thing called a receptor, a soluble receptor for a molecule that normally triggers blood vessels to grow. So this molecule called VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor, is normally made where tissues want to induce blood vessel growth mm -hmm. and it binds to blood vessel cells and makes them proliferate. But in the cornea and in the retina, they produce this soluble thing called FLT, SFLT, which is a receptor for that signal and it basically acts like molecular blotting paper. It soaks up all of the growth factor, stopping it from working so the blood vessels do not invade those tissues where, were they to go in there, they would cause a serious problem for sight. And why this is important is that because there are diseases associated with blood vessels going into those places, it means that we could use this technique in future or this new piece of understanding to try and treat those conditions and stop them happening in the first place. All right, our lines are open for you at 22 minutes to 10 o'clock on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. We are taking your SMSs on 31702 and 31567. Let's go to Peter in Rivonia. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Reggie. I'd mm. just like to ask the naked scientist uh, why we tear when we yawn and why our noses run when it's cold. Short and sweet. Good morning. So why, why do our eyes tear up when we yawn? Well, the 
most likely reason for that is because the tears come into your eye from your lacrimal gland, which is situated on the upper outer part of your eye. The tears flow across your eye, lubricating the eyeball, and then they run down into a thing called a punctum, which is a little black dot you can see on the inner lower eyelid. So right up against where it meets your nose, you'll see there's a tiny black dot, and that's like the plug hole for tears. And they run down there, and a thing called the nasolacrimal duct carries the tears into your nose. When you yawn, though, you're increasing the pressure in your nose. You're also changing the shape of the muscles in your face. And this has the effect of squeezing shut that plug hole temporarily. So the tears, which continue to be produced at the same rate, can't drain away temporarily, so they build up and your eyes feel a bit teary. And the other question that you asked was, just remind me? Uh, why do our noses run when it's cold? Okay, well I think the reason that you get a runny nose when it's cold is because the nose contains a lot of what's called erectile tissue. And what happens is that air going into the nose passes over this tissue which you can very dramatically increase the swelling and the blood flow in that tissue. This has the effect of making air warmer and moist. So when you um, breathe in cold air, I think what this does is it triggers the nose lining to increase its blood flow and increase the activity of that um, erectile tissue in order to make the air warmer and damper and some of the water that gets produced then condenses and and can dribble out if you've got higher blood flow you're more likely to have a runny nose anyway i think that's the most likely reason let's go to dima in dipti of high hi really hansen i'd like to know if there's an ingredient in methylated spirit that stops um, a mosquito bite from swelling well, mm. well, methylated spirits contains a mixture of alcohols, ethanol, there's a bit of that in there, and methanol, which is very, very poisonous. And the purple colour and the horrible taste, and um, I'm not saying I go drinking methylated spirits, but <laughs> I used to go camping. And uh, we used to take with us a methylated spirit burner to cook food on. And uh, you used to store the burner inside the kettle and someone didn't put the lid on the burner very well one day, and when we made our cup of tea, uh, the me- there was obviously a little bit of meth still on the inside of the kettle because it got into the tea and it tasted disgusting. And they do that on purpose. It's a chemical called pyridine, which is added to the meths, and it makes it taste absolutely vile to stop people getting tempted from drinking it because if you do drink methylated spirits, the methanol gets metabolised into your in your body into formalin, which is the stuff that they fix bodies with in the morgue. And it's extremely bad for your brain mm. and it causes vision loss and it's very often fatal, actually, so you mustn't drink methylated spirits. But as far as putting it on skin, the chemicals don't go through the skin in appreciable amounts and therefore the systemic absorption of alcohol through the skin is extremely low. In fact, there was a study done recently just for something for a bit of a joke, but it was done by medics in Denmark. Mm -hmm. They uh, immersed their feet in a vodka solution for several hours in order to see if anyone got drunk, (laughs) and they took blood samples from themselves over a period of time to see if their blood alcohol changed, and it didn't. So there's the evidence that um, you don't absorb appreciable amounts of the alcohols through your skin, so you're probably okay if you have contact with your skin with methanol or with methylated spirits. Whether or not it will affect 
the response of a mosquito or response to a mosquito bite, I, I don't know. I'd say it's unlikely. It's more likely that the awful stink puts the mosquitoes off from biting you in the first place because they probably don't like the taste either. Yeah, I found when we were kids, our parents used to do that, Chris, when you had a, a mosquito bite, they'd just put some methylated spirit and it kind of, it, it, it eased it some, somewhat, you know, a bit like oh. uh, when, when you have a burn and then you put it uh, in, in cold water or something, Just it just created... Uh, it could be the cooling effect. Yeah, it had the cooling um, effect. That's yeah. When you put alcohol on your skin, it feels extremely cold because the alcohol is stealing heat energy from your skin and using it to evaporate. The alcohol turns from a liquid into a gas, and this robs energy from the skin to do that, making it feel cooler. So if you have got a, a throbbing bite on the skin, it could be that part of the relief is that is the cooling effect. You're right. Didn't think of that. Thanks for pointing it out. Thank you, Dima. Thank you. We're taking a break. Dean and Nishen, I see your calls coming back to you in just a moment. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Abel, do you have a question following from, uh, following uh, a follow-up question from the blood vessel story that we heard about earlier? Yes, I've got okay. two questions for the Naked Scientist. Um, what caused the blood nerve to burst in an eye? And the other thing, what caused an eye to take the image with? I was working on my computer and after that I saw the image that I saw on the computer all the time. Hold on, even after you'd moved away from the computer you yes. saw that image? Yes. Oh, okay. Chris, can you help? Okay, first of all, the blood vessel question. Now, can I clarify, please, Abel, do you mean blood vessels in the back of the eye, in the retina, causing bleeding inside the eye, or do you mean the phenomenon where sometimes the white of a person's eye can go red, especially Um, on, say, a windy day, a person can have a very red eye, almost like someone had a bleed onto the white of their eye? Yeah, my eye can red. Okay, it's a red one. Yes, okay. okay. This is quite common, you'll be pleased to know. It's because the conjunctiva, which is the thin membrane which is around the the cornea, which is the clear bit on the front of the eye, this is very richly supplied in blood vessels. And they can be fragile, and certain circumstances can cause them occasionally to bleed a little bit. And when some blood comes out, it smears out, rather like if you had a piece of glass and then a drop of blood and another piece of glass the blood would track between the two pieces of glass and spread out. When you have a little bit of a bleed into the membrane on the front of the eye, it it spreads between the layers of tissue, and so it looks very dramatic, but it's just a tiny bit of blood that's spread out very thinly, and it does go away. It's not unsafe. I thought you might also be referring to the fact that some people, and this is very common in people, for instance, who have diabetes, if it's badly controlled, they, they can get blood vessels forming in the back of the eye, growing into the retina, because the retina doesn't have a good enough blood supply and those new blood vessels tend to be a bit leaky and they sometimes pop and you get a little bleed into the retina and this can be dangerous because the iron in the blood appears to be toxic to the rods and cones and so an ophthalmologist will take a look at a person's eye with a camera and they can then use a laser to zap these new blood vessels which are weak and might burst Mm -hmm. and stop this from happening. Now, your other question referred to what we call latent images. When you look at certain things which have very high contrast, and computer screens are quite good examples of this, because they tend to go for strong edges to make things stand out, you, your eye is, is detecting edges of things and colours in the retina. And what I think is happening with 
or what you're noticing is that you look at something for a long time, then you look away and you can almost see the negative image appearing in front of your eyes for a while. And there are two reasons for this. One is that when you look at something, light from the thing you're looking at is hitting the rods and cones in the eye and it is hitting a chemical in those rods and cones called rhodopsin. And every time some light hits this molecule of rhodopsin in one of the rods or cones, it causes some of that rhodopsin to be used up. And th this has to be replaced. So the cell responds slightly less to that colour for a little while afterwards. And so when you look at something which is a certain colour for a long time and then you look away and look at something different, the rods and cones that were responding to that colour now become correspondingly less active than they were before. And the rods and cones that weren't being used, used very much because there wasn't very much of that particular colour in that surface, when you look away they become correspondingly a little bit more active for a little while. And this has the effect of making the colour perception change temporarily. That's part of it. The other part of this is that there's also some processing that goes on in your retina. It's not just a question of some spots of light come in and then they're transmitted to the brain. The retina has a number of layers in it which also help to, to process or decode what you're looking at. And there are what are called surround inhibition effects. And some of the cells in the retina are switched strongly on and they turn off the things next to them. The idea being that only those cells which should be switched on are strongly active and this has the, the effect that when you look at something you see nice nice clear edges and it's clear where one thing starts and another thing stops mm. but then when you look at something different then it takes a little while for that processing to change and readapt to the new situation especially if you've been looking at the thing for a long time and I know that's a very wordy answer but I hope you'll find that a thorough answer and it's helpful to you. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks indeed. All righty, let's go to, um, is it is it Nishan in Santon? Nishan, yeah, good morning. Hi. Yeah. How are you doing? Good, Nishan. Great. Um, yeah, just a very quick one. Uh, it's sort of a follow-up from your first the opening uh, introduction about the blood vessels again. Um, is there some sort of uh, way to actually carry on this methodology and introduce it into the treatments of... Uh, uh, brain tumors, as an example, where it actually uh, starves uh, blood vessels going to the actual tumor, feeding it, thus actually trying to, you know, starve it from growing further. Um, you know, that's basically the summary of it. Uh, I can listen on the radio if you want uh, after this. Wow, what an amazing question. And the answer is, you're absolutely on the money. And I think you should phone up Mbala <laughs> Ambati, who published the paper, because he, he uh, said almost exactly the same thing to me when I spoke with him on the phone just last week when he was about to publish this paper. And the answer is yes, absolutely. Because what um, cancers do is to grow and they then recruit new blood vessels to go into the tumour to sustain it. And one way to stop cancers growing is to stop blood vessels growing into them properly. And so if we could find a way to produce molecules like this, either by making the cancer make these molecules themselves to stop the, the growth factors, or you put the growth factors into little nanoparticles and put them into the bloodstream and target the nanoparticles just to the cancer, which is possible, either of those should help to cut off the blood supply to the tumour and therefore, at the very least, slow down its growth. 
Thank you very Brilliant much. Question. Yeah, thank you very much, Nishan. Thanks indeed. Is it CISO in Kempton Park who's been waiting patiently? Good morning to you. Yes, um, I just wanted to find out if it is a good idea to drink Coke whenever we feel flatulence or broken over the radio. I've asked that this is a very popular thing. And uh, Chris, I don't know, because I sometimes ask Brian the same thing because when I'm bloated, because you have some Coke and he just laughs. So I don't know what their laugh means. <laughs> you, have, you don't want to take cocaine, though. That's really bad. <laughs> Not that Coke. <laughs> um, the answer to this is that there's a lot of carbon dioxide dissolved in fizzy drinks. And when you feel bloated, what's probably happening is that you've got a lot of gas building up as a pocket somewhere in your digestive system. So you could argue that putting more gas in is probably adding insult to injury. Yeah. And that's probably not going to help that much because the place where the gas probably is building up in your intestines is probably not the place the the Coca-Cola or whatever fizzy drink you decide to consume is going to go first. What might happen, though, is that in some people, when you drink something very fizzy like that, it can help you to do a massive belch. And if you have uh, got a lot of gas built up somewhere and it, it is quite close to coming out, then sometimes something that does trigger a nice big belch can help to relieve the other pocket of trapped gas. And so there may be some relief ensuing from that. You could try it. So is that why he's laughing at me when I ask him that? Okay. Let's go to Dean in Pretoria. Hi. Hi, good morning. I want to know why the temperature drops so much at sunrise um, compared to just before sunrise. I work quite early in the morning on the markets and uh, just before sunrise it's about three or four degrees and at sunrise the temperature drops to minus one quite easily and nobody can tell me why. Hello Dean. The answer to this is that we call this the dawn dip and there are two aspects to it. The first aspect is that just before the sun rises, that corresponds to the time when the patch of the earth that you're on has not seen the sun for the longest time possible. And given that the sun is the source of thermal energy on the earth, pretty much, then if you cut off the supply of thermal energy for the longest time, that will correspond to the time when the earth's surface feels the coldest. Second point is that when the sun does start to rise, then it triggers various pressure changes and warming of one bit of the air. And this causes that part of the air to move from its area of higher pressure to an area of lower pressure. And this can draw in or have the effect of drawing in cooler winds of colder air from aroundabouts. And therefore, it can lead to a dip in temperature temporarily before the thermal warming of the ground then means that you pick up more radiative heating coming off the ground and warm air moving in towards you again. So there are those two aspects that explain that. Thank you very much. And uh, Chris, this is where we'll leave it then. Thank you very much for giving us your time and we look forward to another conversation next week Friday. Thanks, Reedy. Thanks, everybody. See you soon. Cheers.